All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Now, it may be stating the glaringly obvious, but churches can face trouble from one of two different directions. They can face trouble from outside. They may be opposed by, or people are opposed to the message that Christians are preaching and they might seek to hinder or halt what it is that Christians are doing, protest what they're doing. In some countries today, the governments still outlaw Christianity. In some countries, there will be other religions that are seeking to oppress Christianity in those countries. Rather ironically, that kind of trouble generally has the effect of strengthening churches and seeing them grow even more rapidly. But there's also another threat for churches, a more subtle threat, and a threat that I think ends up being more damaging for churches. And that's the threat that comes from inside the church. Trouble inside the church, it can be people who are power-hungry, money-hungry. It can be about pride or jealousy or hypocrisy. And churches can become divided. And it can be a devastating thing for a church. I'm sure that you've seen those sorts of splits happen. Well, in the passage that we're looking at today, Luke wants to show us both of those threats as they're being faced by this newly formed church. But we open up with this incredible picture at the end of chapter 4, verse 32, this picture of harmony and unity among this new Christian community. All seems to be going incredibly well. Look at what we read, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. 
With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and bought the money from the sales and put it at the feet of the apostles and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, one in heart and mind sharing everything they've got. Sounds like Woodstock, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it, can't, it has that kind of hippie colony feel about it. But it's important to notice one thing. No one is being forced to share. There's no rule or law that said you have to do this. You have to share. Selling everything wasn't a prerequisite for becoming part of this church, but those who were part of the church wanted to share what they had. They shared because they wanted to. It's interesting, the Greek philosophers, a little earlier than Christian times, Plato and Aristotle, uh, they believed that the way that you could achieve unity was to have people unified and then they might share what they have. But here's the church kind of happening the other way around. They're sharing what they have and that brings about the unity within this church. People are one in heart and mind because of their faith in Jesus. So it's natural that they would want to share what they have with other believers. They're united in their trust in Jesus and it expresses itself in their care and their concern for others. Now sometimes in the Bible they've put the chapter divisions in strange places and they've got another one here. I think that verse 36 really belongs at the beginning of the next chapter. This is what we read. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the feet of the apostles. Funds were getting low in this Christian community. Barnabas had a block of land. He sold the land and brought the proceeds from the sale and put it at the feet of the apostles for them to be able to to distribute in the, in the way that was going to be best for this community, for this group of believers. Then following straight on from that, we have this story of Ananias and Sapphira. Quite a contrasting story. We've just heard about Barnabas selling a block of land and then Ananias and Sapphira kind of do the same thing. Now, we don't know for certain why they did this but they sold a block of land and gave the money to the apostles but they kept some back they seem to have wanted to give the impression that they'd given the whole amount to the church just like Barnabas had now again we don't know exactly what their motive was in what they did but it seems to have some pretty serious consequences but let's be clear They didn't have to sell the block of land. They didn't have to give any of the money to the apostles. And they could have chosen to just give part of the proceeds. And that's what Peter said to Ananias, isn't it? Verse number four. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? Giving only part of the proceeds for the sale was not the wrong thing that they did. Trying to deceive and give the impression that they were giving the whole proceeds of the sale, that's the issue. 
Now again, I want to stress, only giving part of it would have been perfectly fine, no problem with that whatsoever. In fact, they didn't have to give any of the money if they didn't want to. That's what Peter says. But what they chose to do was to mislead people, to deceive people in their supposed generousness. When the people gave money, it could be given for a variety of reasons and there could be given any amount they wanted. And Ananias and Sapphira chose to deceive, to give the impression that they'd given all the, all the proceeds from the sale. When people give money, sometimes there can be a variety of reasons for it. I know I've told this story before, but one of the older guys in our church up in Byron Bay a few years back told me a story about when he was growing up in the 1930s in Lismore. So this is a very long time ago. But he said that there was a wealthy businessman in the church and on Sundays when the collection plate was being passed around, he would take his wallet out of his back pocket and he would take out a 20-pound note. Doesn't sound like much today, but there's a, did you know there's a little app that they've got on the Reserve Bank? You can put in 20-pound note 1935 and it tells you what it's worth today. $2,000. That's what that would be worth. So he's reached into his pocket, pulled out a 20-pound note and waved it around above his head before placing it into the plate as the plate came past. Can you guess what his motive might have been? He wanted to be seen as being generous. I mean, he was being generous. He was giving $2,000. Ananias and Sapphira went to Peter handed over a bag of money and either directly or just implied that it was the entire proceeds from the sale of their property. Peter knew right away that Ananias was lying and confronts him for what he's done. Ananias has nothing to say in response to Peter because he knows that it's true. And then we're told he dropped dead, right there. And it says... Great fear seized all those who heard what had happened. You can understand that, can't you? Here they are, standing in front of the apostles and Peter is confronting him about what he's done and the man drops dead. Now I've got to say that shocks me as well. This story doesn't kind of seem to fit in with the rest of the book of Acts. It's all been so positive and encouraging up to this point. Ananias was buried and three hours later his wife Sapphira turns up, Peter confronts her with the same issue, she tries the same lie and she meets the same fate. She drops dead right there. So what are we supposed to make of all of this? Well I think the first thing is that Luke wants to show us the warts and all of the early church. At the end of chapter 4 we saw this wonderful harmony but now we also know that the church is still made up of flawed people people who do things for the wrong motives but i think there's a story in the pages of the old testament that kind of sheds a little bit of light on what's happening here it's found in the book of joshua and you can read it when you get home it's in joshua chapter 7 it's a story about a man by the name of achan and there are some remarkable similarities between that story and this story that we read about here in Acts. Let me just point you to what those similarities are. 
In both stories, it's soon after a major salvation event. In the book of Joshua, they've just been rescued from, the, from Egypt and they're moving into the land that God has promised to give them. And for the early church, it's following the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the establishment of the church preaching this incredible message about Jesus. In both stories, God is gathering his people together as a new community. The reason that they're moving into this promised land in the book of Joshua is because God is going to have the people of Israel as his people. For Christians, it's the early days of the Christian church. I don't think it's a coincidence that Luke uses the word church for the very first time in the book of Acts, there in chapter 5, verse 11. In both stories, something that was devoted or dedicated to God has been withheld by deception. And in both stories, it's the leaders of God's people as well as God himself who's being deceived. Well, the episode concludes with that verse there, verse 11. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Fear is a pretty appropriate response to God. He's the God and creator of the entire universe. Not run away and hide type of fear, but awe and reverence and respect. He's the creator of all things. He's the judge of all things. It's like it says in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, I think the take-home message for us today as we read this story is being part of God's people is a serious thing and there's no place for pride or half-heartedness in your relationship with God. And then comes the trouble from outside of the church. Rest of chapter 5, starting in verse number 12, is taken up with this other kind of trouble that the church had to face. Luke tells us that the apostles were doing their usual bit, preaching about Jesus at the temple and healing people in Jesus' name. And again, the religious leaders are angry about what it is that they're doing, so they have them arrested. Now, it's late in the afternoon, so they're going to deal with it the following morning, so they lock them up in a cell for the night. Pick it up there in verse number 18. They arrested the apostles and put them into the public jail, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. The following morning, the Sanhedrin meets, the religious leaders meet, uh, to deal with this issue with the apostles, and they send the guards to the cell to bring the apostles up before them, but the guards report that they're gone. Eventually, word comes that the apostles have gone back to the temple to continue preaching about Jesus. Now, try and put yourself in the shoes of the apostles. You've been arrested. You've been put in jail for preaching at the temple. You get released from jail. Do you think you go straight back to the temple to preach again? Wouldn't it just be running through your head, where else could we go? Maybe somewhere not near the religious leaders. But it shows the conviction that these people have, doesn't it? They know that it's important for people to hear about Jesus. 
They're arrested and brought into the Sanhedrin. Now, I'm only guessing, but I'm pretty sure from reading this that Peter's never done any conflict resolution courses. He doesn't seem to have that skill. It's just a few short words he has with the Sanhedrin. They're in verse, chapter 5, verse 33, and they want to kill him. That's how angry they are. But one of the Pharisees, a man by the name of Gamaliel, speaks up and he gets the apostles sent out while he talks to the Sanhedrin. And he reminds them about two recent uprising that there has been in Israel. And he wants to point out to them the same thing. Soon as the leader died, the movement died as well. So his advice, leave them alone. Jesus is dead. And then he makes this remarkable statement in verse 38. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you won't be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. The apostles are brought back in, warned not to preach about Jesus anymore, beaten and then released. And they leave the Sanhedrin. Did you see how it ends there in verse 41? The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name the name of Jesus. Day after day, in the temple court and from house to house, they never stop teaching or proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They're thrilled to be counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus. So what's the take-home message here? What's the application for us? What are we supposed to learn from this? Well, I think I can safely say that none of us is going to face the kind of persecution that these guys faced. It's going to be highly unlikely that any of us are going to be beaten up because of our faith in Jesus. I doubt that any of us will ever physically suffer for the, space, for the sake of the gospel. But we may face opposition. It might be those who would prefer that we just didn't talk about Jesus anymore. Some of us, simply being a Christian may mean that people think you're an idiot, that you can't be too bright if you think Jesus was real. And we need to be ready to face those things when they come. Don't avoid that kind of suffering. Don't hide from it or run away from it. The thing that we can share with the apostles is that same conviction that this is the most important lesson the most important message that anyone can hear in their life. That life-changing message of Jesus' death and resurrection. There's a verse at the end of Hebrews that I think sums up what we can learn from this episode here in Acts. It comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw, everything that, that, that throw off everything that hinders 
and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Our race is going to look a little different to the race that the apostles were in and the race that the early church had to face. But let's encourage each other in the race. Let's remember that we're in this race together and remember that this is a race worthy of our whole heart and soul. 